great reminder to us this morning of what we have in the Word of God, the ancient words from God to us by men. The writer of Hebrews says, clearly God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son. Revelation of Jesus Christ, the central theme of all of Scripture is just that. God the Son, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This morning we want to return to our study of the Gospel of Luke. The words of Jesus Christ as He is ministering on this earth to those who are intrigued, intrigued about Christ like many are today. Let's once again go before the Lord in prayer and ask Him to tend to our time. Father, we need You in this moment. We need You all the time. But when it comes to Your Word, Father, we know that we have the Spirit in us, those who know Jesus Christ by faith, He will lead us in truth, and we can understand these things. The natural mind does not understand the things of you. We know that. We would ask for your superintending grace here this morning as we listen to the words of your Son, Jesus Christ, words to us that we might heed them, understand them, and then put them into practice in our very lives. All to your glory and honor, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. The Gospel of Luke, we have been studying over the last several months together. The Gospel of Luke, and this morning we are returning to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. I have entitled this series that we are currently in, What is a Christian? What is a Christian? That seems oddly to be a confusing topic in our world today, particularly within evangelicalism at large. The term Christian has been seemingly hijacked like most terminology that is used within Christendom over the centuries. Terms get hijacked by the world. But this term has been hijacked, it seems, even by those who would consider themselves Christian. And it's being used anymore to describe anyone who is religious in any kind of way. Several days ago, I met two gentlemen who came to my house claiming to be Christian. And we had a discussion about their souls and why they weren't Christian talking about Jesus Christ. It's centered upon Christ and their lack of understanding as to who Jesus Christ actually is, even though they believed they knew the truth. They believed they were Christian. After I had spoken to them, it reminded me of years ago as my wife and I were on the brink of getting married 
and I was a professing Christian even though I was not saved. I was someone who claimed to know Jesus, but I didn't know Jesus at all, at least by way of salvation. And a relative of ours asked her what religion I was. And she replied, well, he's a Christian. Of course, she said that not because her and I were Christians, but because I had told her that I was a Christian and I had an intellectual belief about Jesus. The reply that she received in return was a telling one and just gives an example as to what is happening at greater lengths even today. The reply simply was this, well, everyone is a Christian, what religion is he? Everyone's a Christian. Now that, of course, is a curious response. But it's not simply a misunderstanding of what a Christian actually is. It is also an underlying effect of a misunderstanding of how someone becomes a true Christian. To say everyone is a Christian is not only simply to misunderstand what Christianity is, but it misunderstands the reality of how someone becomes a Christian. Because if everyone's a Christian, then it must just happen by birth. So within that response is a belief that It is religion that ushers us into a relationship with a God of some kind. However, that God is defined by whoever is within the religion, much like the two gentlemen that showed up at my house, and much like maybe family members that you know, or anyone in a religion that is outside of true Christianity. All religions are known by this religious category today, called Christian. So what is a Christian? Well, Jesus has summed that up very succinctly for us in our study of the Gospel of Luke. He had said to the religious leaders on a certain day when the Pharisees were always continually following Him and He had done some healing miraculously healing people, and then sitting down with Matthew as he calls him from the tax shack and has him over to his house to sit around with other tax gatherers and people whom the Pharisees thought were severe sinners more than they. And Jesus said to them succinctly in chapter 5, verse 31, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We cannot forget that Jesus, being God in the flesh, has a twofold purpose in dealing with mankind. One is that he desires to save sinners. That is what He came to do. God has spoken to us in these last days in His Son. His Son has come to save sinners. That's what Jesus clearly says. I have not come to call the righteous. I have come to call sinners. 
And that just implies then secondly that Jesus will always refuse to save sinners who already consider themselves righteous. Jesus came to save sinners, not those who are righteous. Recorded for us in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus said to the people, Repent and believe in the Gospel. Repent and believe in the Gospel. In other words, in order to gain salvation, in order to be a Christian, one must repent and believe. Repent of sin, turn from sin, and believe upon the one who is giving you life. That means that the good news concerning salvation by grace through faith in Jesus is not for the self-attained righteous person. It is not for those in the world who consider themselves righteous, as Jesus said. It is for those who know they are the unrighteous of the world. In fact, Romans chapter 5 clearly says that God came to save the ungodly. It is the ungodly. Why? Because God's desire is to extend forgiveness and cleansing from the guilt of sin to those who realize they need it. I have come to call the not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So this is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is a message that brings immediate division within the hearts and minds of people because it is a message that separates. It is a message that divides. It separates because the gospel makes definitive declarations about the condition of humanity, about the condition of the soul, about the condition of every living, breathing person on this earth. And then the gospel declares and commands that all men everywhere are to repent and believe upon Jesus Christ. So the gospel commands all men to turn from sin to Christ. But the problem, the problem is that in order to turn from sin, one must first acknowledge that they are guilty sinners. This is what Jesus is implying when he writes, speaks to the Pharisees. I have not come to call the righteous. You must acknowledge first that you are a sinner, and that is where the divide comes. Some acknowledge, most refuse. Some acknowledge they are sinners in need of salvation. Most refuse. Matthew 7, Jesus said, verse 13 and following, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Why? Because... Narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. 
Jesus' words in Matthew 7 clearly tell us that not everyone is a Christian. Everybody certainly is religious because we are made for relationship, and religion is based on relationships with something, some way. But not everyone is a Christian because a Christian is a person who has repented of their sin and embraced Jesus Christ by faith alone. That's a Christian. The wide road is filled with the many who consider themselves righteous. They consider themselves as being right before God, and yet they reject Jesus Christ. They reject Jesus Christ. We know what the Bible says. No one is righteous. No one is righteous. And Jesus, who is Himself, salvation personified, offers no help to those who think they are righteous. I have not come to call the righteous. Therefore, no one who is righteous in their own minds is a true Christian. Why? Because the Bible says that no one comes to God except through Jesus Christ. You cannot get to God any other way. And so Jesus said, I have come to call sinners to repentance. The implication is that salvation comes not by human achievement. It comes by divine achievement. It's not a human effort reward. It is a divine reward accomplished by the divine Accomplished by God Himself. So those who refuse the gospel, those who reject Jesus Christ, are those who are of the religion of human achievement. doesn't matter if they think they are or not. If you reject Jesus Christ, you are in the religion of human achievement. You can call it whatever you want. You can call it Catholicism or Hinduism or Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever kind of ism you want to call it. Please don't call it Christianity. Those who believe they can earn righteousness before God on their own are part of the religion of human achievement. In their minds and hearts, Jesus has nothing for them. This is what I told these two men standing in my house. I said, listen, you say you believe in Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. It is not God. The Jesus of the Bible is God in the flesh. He is the God who saves. The Jesus you believe in is a Jesus of your own making. It's spelled with the same letters, but it will not save you. Your souls are damned to hell. This was most of the crowd following Jesus. They were curious about His power. They liked that he could bring physical relief to their life. But as far as their spiritual life went, they had no need for Jesus. Why? Because that's what the religion of human achievement proclaims. That's what it does. Life according to your own way. Do life the way you want. Do life according to your own rules. As long as you are better than the person or the group of people whom you define life by in your own way, then fine, you're good with God. Just go about it your own way. 
But Jesus didn't come for those people. Jesus came for sinners. He came to call sinners to repentance. That is those who are spiritually lost. He came to call the sick, those who are spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins. Therefore, you can see here in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 6, the character of the Christian, Jesus is laying that out for us with clarity. Beginning in verse 20 all the way down through verse 49 is this picture, is this laying out with clarity for the people just what it means and what it looks like to be a Christian. Last Lord's Day, we began to just scratch the surface of what is being said here. I just want to, I want to hone in again on these first few verses, and I'll read for us beginning in verse 20. Luke chapter 6 and verse 20. Jesus, turning his gaze on his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and cast insults at you and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. Jesus has become quite popular among the people. Not because the many who are following Him understand their spiritual need, not because they're coming to Him because they realize they are sinners in need of repenting and forgiveness of their sin, but because the many wanted physical relief from Jesus. They, they came to Jesus because they saw in Jesus a sense in which their physical life would be fixed. And on this particular occasion, as we said last time, there are at least three different groups in this crowd, and we saw that at the end of chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, as Jesus had descended from the mountain after praying with the Father all night, he had called the twelve to himself out of the mass of disciples who were there. He had appointed them as apostles, equipped them. And so you have the apostles there who are in this crowd. And that is really, I think, directed at what Jesus is saying in verse 20 when he sets his gaze on his disciples. These are people who, who truly were uh, believers in him, including the apostles, and his focusing his attention in his words on them, although the rest of the crowd is hearing what he's saying for sure. And there was also a great multitude, as it says in verse 
17, these, this multitude of disciples who were with him, these were the regular attenders that followed Jesus. They were like the, the popular crowd. Not all of them were actually believers unto salvation. Not all of them believed unto Jesus Christ. The truth is that probably, as Matthew says, very few were saved, but they followed Jesus because Jesus met their physical needs. They got something from Jesus as he was directing his attention at authenticating the very reality of his words by what he did through miracle. Then, of course, there's that third group, a throng of people from the greater surrounding area, even coming as far as from Tyre and Sidon up in the north. These are the people who are just simply saying, hey, something's happening over here. There's a crowd gathering over here. Let's go see what's happening. These are the curious people. These are the ambulance chasers, the tire kickers. Those who come just out of curiosity. No commitment to Jesus at all. Within this group, of course, is the religious leaders. They they believe they're righteous. They're not committed to Jesus. They're just looking for a way to hold Him accountable so they can get rid of Him and regain their own popularity. And even in this group are many Gentiles because it says that they came from Tyre and Sidon. That's a very Gentile area. And so many are coming to see and many are coming to hear Jesus. That's what it says in verse 18. They had come to hear Him. Why? Because Jesus had authority. We've talked about this at length in our study. Luke has been reminding us of this over and over and over again so that we do not forget that even in our own minds and in our own lives. The authority is in Jesus Christ. It is not in us. It is not in what we do. It is in all of Jesus Christ. He's the one with authority. And He has divine authority because He is God. Jesus has exercised His authority in many ways, and probably most importantly, He has exercised it in the forgiveness of sins. People came to hear Him. He made the crippled people walk. He manufactured in a moment new eyes and new ears and arms and hands and and caused lepers to, to be cleansed in an instant and new tongues for those who could not speak. They were miraculously made, and people did not know what to think of Jesus. His power was on display, and He healed all the people. They were shocked as His authority is exercised over the spiritual world. Verse 18, those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. So there's no mistaking who Jesus is. Jesus has been authenticated by what He does. His authority is overarching. His authority is exhaustive. It is a divine authority. Nothing outside or within the world, nothing even in the spiritual world, isn't under His very direction. He speaks with authority. He heals every kind of disease with the divine authority. And the demonic realm does what He says. All have been healed, and so there is not one person in this entire crowd that has suffering that is going on in their personal life. They have been healed from their sicknesses. They have been healed from their diseases. They have had their demon possession cast out of them. Jesus has removed any kind of personal, physical, earthly 
hindrance to their life so that what he says, there's no excuse. They cannot say, well, I, I didn't know what he said because this was going on and distracting me. There's no excuse here to reject anything Jesus says. Jesus has authority. And so in an authoritative sense, Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who are hated and who weep. The religion of human achievement says that's not how Christianity is defined, but that's how Jesus is defining it because Jesus is God. The religion of human achievement says blessed is everyone who does all they can do for themselves. Do all you can do, you'll be blessed. Blessed are those who rise to the top. Blessed are those who stand on the backs of everybody else to get as high as they can get. Blessed are those who have all they can get in and of themselves. Blessed is the self-made person. Blessed are those within religion who do religion and the activities of religion as if it is the law and therefore they attain righteousness on their own. Blessed are those who follow those things and the traditions of men. But Jesus says, no, a Christian is defied this way. Blessed is the poor, the hungry, the mournful, and the hated. Last time you began to think about your Christian life, did you think about it that way? That's how God defines us. That's how God defines the declaration of blessing upon the life of those who are in Jesus Christ. You're blessed. You're blessed. You have an overwhelming blessing. In fact, Ephesians 1 says we have been blessed in the heavenly places with all things in Christ. And here is Jesus saying, blessed are you who are poor, hungry, mournful, hated. Cuts right across the grain of our thinking. I dare say any of us thought about that when we came to Jesus. Maybe, we're honest, we thought once we believed in Jesus, life was going to get a whole lot better. Believe in Jesus, man, and my life is going to get better. Things are going to look up. I got, the, I got the eternal fire insurance paid. Everything's good. Struggle's going to go away. Life's going to be all good. Relationships are going to be restored. There'll be no more trouble. It's almost as if Jesus here goes into the retail store of salvation and flips everything on its head. Everything that was cheap is now expensive, and everything that was expensive is now cheap. It's almost as if he changed all the price tags around. It's almost as if Jesus is saying that happiness is just misery by another name. The world says your life is made of what you have. Define life by your stuff, the circumstances you find yourself in. The crowd is following Jesus. They, are, they want to have their physical life cared for. It was those in the crowd that believed that happiness was going to be found that way. But Jesus comes along and He turns over the cart of their thinking. It's not like that, folks. That's not Christianity. Jesus is saying, listen, external things cannot, cannot satisfy your internal need. 
External things cannot satisfy what you need the most. If you are to be a Christian, then this is to be your heart. This, what Jesus is saying here. If you are a Christian, this is to be your heart. Because physical things cannot touch your soul. Here's the overall point Jesus is making. It's dangerous for me to even say this because for fear that you'll put your pins down and say, why do I need to listen anymore? That's the point. But listen anyway. Jesus is saying it's impossible to come to me and impossible to follow me without having my new life within you. It's impossible to come to me, impossible to follow me without having my new life in you you. And so the blessed life is represented by the true inner righteousness listed here. And Jesus lists the first one. Blessed are you who are poor. We know from our study last time, he doesn't mean physical poverty. We, don't, we know that. Why? Because Matthew chapter 5 says it this way, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, this is the heart of a child of God on display in life. This is the heart of a Christian. It is the heart of humility. To be poor, as it states in Matthew's Gospel, poor in spirit, to be poor in spirit means to recognize one's spiritual poverty apart from God. Jesus turns to the disciples and He says, listen, blessed are you in understanding your spiritual poverty, that you are spiritually bankrupt apart from God. Remember we said last time no one comes to Christ for forgiveness of sin unless they recognize the need. Jesus made that clear over in chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. Well, this here is the attitude of someone who realizes and recognizes their need. The true Christian is a person who sees themselves as someone who is spiritually lost, spiritually hopeless apart from Jesus Christ. They are poor in spirit. It doesn't matter what they have materially. It doesn't matter how rich or how economically poor they might be. It doesn't matter what kind of education they have or what kind of position they have attained societally. Any other outward achievement doesn't matter. The true Christian is a person who is poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. In other words, they know they have no spiritual merit before God. They know they cannot earn the spiritual reward through effort. They simply come before God spiritually destitute, relying upon Christ alone, just like the tax gatherer in Luke chapter 18, who begs for God's mercy because he's a sinner. So those who come spiritually bankrupt to Jesus Christ, it is those, Jesus says, 
who inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Having the kingdom of God is everything. But Jesus says, you have the kingdom of God. It's everything. We know that it's everything because Jesus says in contrast in verse 24, Woe to you who are rich, i.e. rich in spirit, those who think you're righteous in yourself, those who don't need a physician, those who don't think they're unrighteous. That's what he means by rich. Woe to you who are rich because you're receiving your comfort in full. You don't know Jesus Christ, you think you're righteous on your own, you better get all you can here because this is it. That's the point. Woe to you. You are a cursed person. Two men had come to my house the other day and they said, well, we'll just agree to disagree. I said, we cannot agree to disagree because one of us is going to hell. I said, there's eternal consequences for disagreeing. You don't believe Jesus is God, and because of that, there's an eternal consequence, and that consequence is hell. I said, it's not good enough just to walk off and say, well, we just disagree with you. Listen, you are on the road to hell. Jesus says, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Having the kingdom is everything. At least that's how we ought to recognize it. That's how it ought to be for us. For if we have that attitude as a believer about being in the kingdom of God, then we will live for the king of the kingdom. Notice, by the way, go over to Luke chapter 12. This, this whole theme continues to just repeat itself over and over again in Jesus' teaching. Notice what he said in Luke chapter 12, verse, beginning in verse 22. He says to his disciples, after talking to them about denouncing covetousness, God cares for you, God knows about you, God God loves you. You're you're in his kingdom. This is the idea. He says, for this reason, I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat, nor for your body as to what you shall put on for your for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens for they neither sow nor reap and they have no storeroom, no barn. And yet God feeds them How much more valuable are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? If then you cannot even do a very little thing, why are you anxious about other matters? You find it interesting that even Jesus' words there in talking about adding something to your lifespan, about giving extra days to your life so you live longer, Jesus calls that a small thing? If then you cannot even do a very little thing, immediate context, he's talking about being anxious about adding life to your life. Since you can't do that small thing, that's a very small thing for God. God spoke and it was. 
This is the God we know. This is the kingdom that we are in as Christians. Since you can't do that, then why are you anxious about other matters that are even necessarily smaller than that? That's the point. Look at the lilies, how they grow. They don't toil. They don't spin. But I tell you, even in Solomon's glory, he did not clothe himself like one of those, but God so raised the grass in the field, which is alive today, gone tomorrow, thrown into the furnace. How much more will he clothe you? O oh, men of little faith. Don't seek what you shall eat, what you shall drink. Keep worrying. Why? All these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. But seek for his kingdom, and these things shall be added to you. Matthew 6 says, seek first his righteousness. Do not be afraid, little flock, verse 32, for your father has chosen gladly to give you what? The kingdom. The kingdom. Blessed are you who are poor, Luke chapter 6, for yours is the kingdom of God. God has given you the kingdom. Why? Because God has given you the king. Those who come to Jesus Christ as spiritually bankrupt, unwilling to set their hope upon themselves in any kind of way, when they come to God in that way, spiritually bankrupt, here's the promise, you will not leave spiritually bankrupt. Listen to Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, who, who lives forever, whose name is holy. Who is that? The high and exalted one who lives forever. Who is that? God. It's God. Listen to what he says. I dwell on high and uh, on a high and holy place, and also I dwell with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God says, here's where I dwell. I, I live in a high and holy place, and yet I also dwell with the spiritually bankrupt. Those who come to me bankrupt. But what is a Christian? A Christian is a person who recognizes their spiritual poverty. Christian is someone who comes to Christ so that in Christ, the king of the kingdom, that's who he is, so that in him they can be made kingdom citizens. So that in him they can be made spiritually rich. So Jesus is saying, listen, in giving up your own kingdom, the poor in the spirit inherit God's kingdom. Turn your back on yourself, the religion of self-achievement. Turn to Christ. Secondly, secondly, Jesus says, Blessed are you who hunger now. Blessed are you who hunger now. The true Christian is a person who not only is poor in spirit, but they are continually hungry Hungry. Ask yourself this morning, am I hungry? Am I hungry? 
And again, this is not for external food. This is not food that fills the body and nourishes the body in a physical way. This is about internal hunger, spiritual hunger. In other words, this is the driving pursuit of the soul. Blessed are you whose driving pursuit of your soul is a hunger, a continual hunger, a hunger that never goes away. So this means first that we know our need, right? We know our need. We're hungry. And secondly, it means that we have the drive to have that need met. Therefore, by way of contrast, this is not the driving force in or with those who are already filled. This is not their driving force. Notice verse 25, Woe to you who are well fed now, in other words, you, you, you have nothing you need. You have it all. You're, you're well fed now. There's no sense in you that you have some kind of need. But caution to you, cursed is you because your need is coming. There's coming a day when your need will be upon you and it will not be a pretty day. The day of your want is coming. It's coming on the day when you realize it too late. It's coming on the day, like Philippians 2 says, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's the day it's coming and you will realize, like in Luke 16, in Lazarus and the rich man, and the rich man is there in that place of torment, wanting to warn his relatives about what's taking place. And Jesus says, i.e. through Abraham, you cannot go, there's a great chasm, no one can cross there. They have the law and the prophets. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. God will be glorified. And so Jesus is saying, listen, the spiritual drive, the driving force in every Christian is a spiritual hunger. The driving force within the soul of a true Christian is the insatiable appetite for the things of God. Why? Because you know God is the one who can satisfy. In fact, Matthew 5, verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So it's a hunger for righteousness. And it comes with an understanding that there's nowhere else you can get that spiritual righteousness except from Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can satisfy that. So Jesus Christ is the satisfier of the hunger. You come hungry to Christ, Christ fills you. That's what he says, you shall be satisfied. That tells us that His righteousness is both available and it is abundant. John's Gospel, John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. You come to Christ, Christ satisfies. So it is the you who are hungry, who are satisfied. It's not somebody else. 
Blessed are you who are hungry. It is the you who are filled completely. That's what satisfied means here. Filled to completion. Listen, if we were sitting here today, and maybe some of us are, we are hungry in our very physical being. When we have a physical hunger, only one thing drives us to do that. We want to find something to eat. That's why some of us get a little irritated when I go a little long. Because we're hungry. We're hungry. So too, those who with spiritual hunger have one drive. Those who are spiritually hungry have one drive. What is that? To run to Christ because it's Christ who satisfies. Seeking satisfaction in Christ and only in Christ is the mark of a true Christian. It's the constant drive of those in the kingdom of God. In fact, you could even say that verse 20 is the overarching principle and the other three run under that. If you're poor in spirit and come to Christ, you are hungry for Christ all the time. If you're poor in spirit running to Christ, having run to Christ, and you are a Christian, you will mourn over your sin. The hunger and thirst for Christ and His righteousness ought to be the outworking of our life every day. Desire that our sin be replaced with righteousness and our disobedience be replaced with obedience. That's a Christian. That's a Christian. So what does the Christian do? They seek to follow the Word of God. They seek to follow after what God says. The more you want, the more you are satisfied, and the satisfying can continue as long as there is hunger. It means we never stop hungering for Christ. So the Christian is blessed in our hungering because we get satisfied. We're blessed in our Spiritual bankruptcy because God brings us into His kingdom. We are blessed in our spiritual hunger because in Christ and through God, through His Word, we are satisfied. Blessed are the poor and blessed are the hungry. These are what Christians are. These are what Christians are. Christians find their riches in Christ. Christians are completely satisfied in Christ. Such a contrast to the religion of human achievement. Such a contrast in what you see happening today in evangelicalism, identifying Christians as this cheap outward activity rather than inward soul change. Human achievement wants to follow after Jesus just for outward change. True Christians, Jesus says, it's not about your outward change that earns anything. It's about what's gone on on the inside. 
And the warning is severe. The warning is severe. There's four, there's four character qualities, if you would, here. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are those who weep, blessed are you when you're hated. There's four severe warnings. Whoa, 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 whoa. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are well-fed now. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Time I read that verse, I think of the internet age in which we live where everybody's trying to garner some kind of following. Everybody's trying to get a number of thumbs up and likes and followers and whatever it is. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Really? That's what you're after? It's a severe warning. Woe means cursed. Cursed are those who believe they are spiritually rich without Christ. Cursed are those who are spiritually full without Christ. Cursed are those who see no reason to mourn over anything in their life that is laughing. It's a gay full-on, joyful, human kind of experience in life now. Looking for all the followers they can. Woe. Spiritually hungry do not desire Christ and personal gratification or Christ and anything else on their own. Christ wrought. The hungry don't want Christ plus, they want Christ. Christ is the satisfaction. Christ is the only thing they have. Christ is what they need. You don't look for gratification in anything else, it's in Christ. Well, this morning, we're we're coming to the communion table. We're, we're going to spend time right here in just a few moments. It's our time of communion. We do this on a regular basis, and oftentimes it becomes so, so common to us, we forget about the importance of it. We forget the, who it is we're worshiping and why we're coming to Christ. Why we're worshiping Christ. Why? Because we're Christians. This is not for the unchristian. This is for the Christian, the true Christian, not the so-called believer, not the follower, not the tire kicker, not the one who's curious because there's a crowd. This is for the true Christian, the, the poor in spirit, the hungry. It's not for those in the religion of human achievement. Why? It's here. It's here together as a family of God that we celebrate Christ. We celebrate the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, what He's accomplished for sinners like us. Not what we've accomplished, what He's accomplished. We celebrate not not to become righteous. We celebrate because He is righteous.
Well, we we could go on. We're gonna we're gonna stop there this morning so we can examine our hearts. Examine our hearts this morning, asking ourselves the question: Am I hungry? How much time in your own heart, quality time, did you spend with the Lord as a Christian? How does that define your hunger for Christ? Being one who is poor in spirit, who has run to Christ, who has come to Him for forgiveness of your sin, for He has given you all the blessings in Christ. You are in the kingdom of God, so how hungry are you in the kingdom? Father, we thank You that You are authoritative, declarative. You're not suggesting things. You're making declarations. Declarations upon the very heart and soul of those who are Your children. We do not come cheaply. It costs You everything cost you your very life. We must not hold to our own resources, to our own self, thinking that we in some way through that will be able to attain a relationship with you that is other than the one we have before we're saved, which is your wrath upon us. The only way to be in the kingdom is to come totally bankrupt of ourself, begging for mercy upon your character and grace and nature because of Christ and what he has accomplished for sinners like us. We want to know Christ. We're hungry to know all that it means to live for Christ to be obedient to Christ, to exemplify Christ, to be empowered with the mind of Christ, to do the things that Christ did here on this earth by way of obedience to you, to follow the Spirit. Lord, help us hunger for your Word, for your Word is truth. Help us have an insatiable appetite for that. For each time we come, we are satisfied. As we think about the sacrifice of your Son on our behalf, what it cost, may the, may the severity of that be upon us. The magnitude of what you accomplished for us. When we understand that, it would in no way leave us walking away unsatisfied because we're so hungry. Thank you for being the satisfaction for our soul. Thank you for meeting the need in its fullest extent. Thank you for opening our eyes to understand 
Lord, we pray. We pray that those in our midst this day who do not know you by faith would come to Christ by faith. You receive all praise, glory, and honor because of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.